Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am uh, Jim Grant, and with me, as always, Eric Whitehead is at the dials, and the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant's, is on hand, as is Phil Grant, who writes almost daily grants. That's so he doesn't have to commit to do it like every day, which is a crashing bore. Also, the markets are closed on the weekend, so it's almost daily. And um, we have a guest today, and our guest is Alex J. Pollock. Alex, what do they call you? Uh, they call me a distinguished senior fellow. and uh, As well they might. I'm, <laughs> and I'm very glad to be with you. <laughs> well, um, Alex uh, came to our street from the American Enterprise Institute, where he was then a resident fellow. And before that, he was, uh, if you please, the president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago. And he's a director of the CME Group. So he is uh, not merely um, an, a writer about these things, although he is certainly that, but also uh, a practitioner. And his uh, most recent book is uh, Finance and Philosophy. And the subtitle is even more descriptive, Why We're Always Surprised. And it was published uh, just last year, and we distributed did this book very gladly indeed and proudly at uh, at the grants. I think it was a fall conference, was it not, Alex? It was, and thank you again for doing that. Yeah, it was a fabulous read. I've, I've been asked from time to time, would I kindly mention the books that uh, I am reading or can vouch for? And certainly, finance and philosophy is near the top of that pile. So, uh, Alex, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And, and the reason that Alex is here, apart from the reason that he ought to be here frequently, in general, in some general principles, is something that Alex wrote for uh, the American Banker, and uh, I saw it yesterday and was just tickled to death. Which will tell you, me, tell you, ladies and gentlemen, as much about me as about the excellence of this essay. And the headline over it: "The Fed is Technically Insolvent. Should Anybody Care?" <laughs> Alex J. Pollock, is the Fed broke? Well, there are two meanings to the word broke, or anyway, maybe three. Uh, meaning one would be uh, on your official accounting books, do you have a negative net worth? And that they do not on their official accounting book. Uh, they do. They, they have, have a negative a, net worth. They have a, not, 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 on their, not on their official books, although they do show their leverage of more than 100 to 1. Uh, a second meaning uh, would be, do you, are you still able to make payments? And they're not broke in that sense because, as uh, people point out, they can still print up as much money as they want. Uh, and give it to you if they happen to owe it to you. But the third sense, which is a highly relevant one in economics and finance, is if we mark your balance sheet to market, do you have a positive or negative mark-to-market net worth? And now in the case of the Fed, at least as of September 30th, the latest numbers, the answer is uh, they had a negative net worth by a, uh, a significant number, $27 billion net worth, as the article discusses. I'm going to, I'm going to read the, uh, the money paragraph here, or the two money paragraphs, to my mind, on Alex's essay in the, in the American Banker posted January 10th. And here they are. The Fed disclosed in December that it had $66 billion in unrealized losses on its portfolio of long-term mortgage securities and bonds. Those are the things that accumulated uh, during QE or quantitative easing. That's as of the end of September. Now, $66 billion, writes Alex, is a big number. In fact, it is equal to 170% of the Fed's capital. It means on a mark-to-market basis, the Fed had a net worth of negative $27 billion. And Alex continues, if interest rates keep rising, the unrealized loss will keep getting bigger and the mark to market net worth will keep getting more negative. The net worth effect is ex- accentuated because the Fed is so highly leveraged. Its leverage ratio is more than 100 
to 1. If long-term rates rise by one percentage point, 1%, I estimate using reasonable guesses of durations, the Fed's mark-to-market loss would grow by $200 billion more. Now, Alex, you say, um, and many uh, so assert, that the Fed can actually never be broke because it can create money. But my question to you is, it can create dollar bills, but can it create net worth? Yeah, it certainly cannot create net worth, especially on a mark to market basis. And aren't there circumstances we can easily imagine in which rates are going up and to the extent that the market took fright at the Fed's attempt to bail itself out through credit creation, that the act of attempting to pay those, uh, to, to bolster that balance sheet net worth through open market operations would in fact badly backfire and it could get, uh, the net worth hole could get deeper through the attempt to make it smaller, no? Yes, and this really shows the strange uh, nature of a fiat currency central bank. Uh, As I say in the article, it's a very uh, paradoxical, counterintuitive, and clever creation since even with a big negative net worth or um, just imagine 1% rise in interest rates or or 1.5% from here, and so the negative net worth of the Fed becomes $227 billion or so. Is that is that big enough to matter? Uh, what about another 100 basis? Now it's $500 billion maybe because they own mortgages, which are convex. So uh, is that big enough to matter? And our, our economist friends tell us, no, uh, everybody will will keep uh, accepting the Federal Reserve's liabilities in settlement. Uh, 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 even though it has a giant negative net worth, but it, but isn't that a, a strange and unusual uh, situation yeah. worth pondering? You know, um, I, Evan Lorenz here I, is, um, has pointed out that uh, there there is another uh, matter of public finance that may or may not be uh, enough to uh, move the worry needle, uh, but it has to do with the weight of issuance of government securities. Uh, as a percentage of GDP. Evan, if you tell us what this prospective issuance amounts to, both from the Treasury and the Fed. Yeah, so going back to the financial crisis, um, the U.S. uh, Treasury ran the biggest deficit in 2009. That was also just when the Fed was kicking off QE1. So the Fed was actually absorbing a lot of that issuance. So if you look at net issuance as a percent of GDP, it is expected this year to be a higher proportion uh, than it has been at any time since World War II. So because the Fed is letting its portfolio go to runoff, at the same time we have the giant deficits from the 2017 uh, tax cuts, the market needs to absorb a record amount of Treasury securities as a percent of GDP. Alex, do you see any connection between the disarray in, in the, on the fiscal side of things and the evident disarray, at least in the optics of the Fed's own finances? Well, uh, well, sure. But we have to remember that the fiat currency central banks, in addition to being a very clever uh, construction, uh, are the thing that, that governments love the most for exactly the reason that Evan was saying there a minute ago, because they can buy up uh, the debt. This is especially helpful in wartime, uh, historically speaking. But at any time you're running big deficits, you'd like to have that central bank to absorb the bonds. Alex, what does this tell us about the world today? Because the Fed is not an outlier. If you look at its balance sheet, which is roughly $4 trillion today, it's actually a trillion dollars smaller than each of the following central banks, European Central Bank, 
Bank of Japan, and People's Bank of China. And although the Fed's yeah. levered roughly 104 times to one, it's not even like the outlier there. The People's Bank of China is levered 1,634 times to one. I, I read your I read your article on that. That was really good. Yes, and isn't it isn't it fascinating? And of all these interesting creatures, uh, central banks, we we have only one that I'm aware of that's completely honest about all this, and and it's the Swiss National Bank, the the Swiss Central Bank, which does market ba- mark its balance sheet to market and publishes the result and just published a big loss uh, for the quarter because it owns a lot of U.S. equities, which went down. Uh, but the others have this fascinating accumulation uh, of assets uh, in the fiat currency central bank. Um, and I, I'm not so sure that anybody, including the central bankers, knows uh, what the result of all this will be. Alex, Alex Pollack, you work in Washington, D.C. and have for a while, and you are no stranger to the uh, power structure in Washington. You have testified in front of mighty committees, and for all I know, you have lunch at the Fed from time to time. Just speculation. But do people ask you about these things? I mean, uh, is this, did this piece of yours in the banker yesterday, which I thought was positively fabulous, did this uh, make any waves in Washington? I've gotten notes from some friends like you saying, great article and fascinating, and wasn't this bound to happen and so on. But I, I don't think there are political ways. Now, when you get around to the end of the article, I, I discuss the, 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 the uh, political question. Well, yes. Uh, and, and, and you discuss, furthermore, the, 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 the uh, inconsistency of the Fed with respect to its own balance sheet. And may I, I want to read that paragraph. Here it is. Quote, when she was the Federal Reserve, when she was the Federal Reserve chair, Janet Yellen told Congress the Fed's capital, quote, is something I believe enhances the credibility and confidence in the central bank, close quote. And you say it would presumably follow that negative capital diminishes the credibility of and confidence in the Fed. <laughs> Nicely struck, Alex, but um, <laughs> but do you reckon that uh, confidence can be nicked by this disclosure? And, uh, I guess that's just guesswork. I, it, it might be, but read, read the next paragraph if you yes. don't mind. It is essential for the Fed's credibility for people to believe there is no problem. This is Alex talking now. As long as everybody, especially the Congress, does believe that, there will be no problem. But if Congress should come to believe that a big loss, that big losses to display incompetence, then the Fed would have a big problem, complicating the political pressure it is already under. It is clear from Fed minutes that its leadership knew from the beginning of QE that very large losses were likely. An excellent old rule is, quote, don't surprise your boss. Should the Fed have prepared its boss, the Congress, for the eventuality, now the reality of big losses and negative mark to market capital? Question mark. And, and of course, you're supposed to conclude, yes, they should have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex, in one way, they, they did prepare for this because in January of um, 2011, the Fed in its weekly H41 report, which discloses its balance sheet, had a little footnote that um, they tried to gloss over, but they essentially said, if we have a negative amount of capital, we'll treat it as a journal entry to the Treasury, and we just won't remit any um, interest payments to the Treasury because they basically pay any income they get uh, until we fill that hole. 
So they seem to fix the insolvency, but they create a budget problem for the um, for an increasingly budget-strapped government. Yeah, it's clear that as the uh, w- one uh, in the short run, one a big contributor uh, to the federal budget has been the payments by the Fed. It pays approximately 99% of its profit to the Treasury. This negative mark-to-market is a leading indicator of smaller profits, at least if, if the uh, implied uh, future interest rates uh, in, in the term structure of rates is right, and that makes the deficit go up. Uh, in 2011, the Fed realizing that they that they might have big losses in the future, I, th- I think the the uh, footnote you're referring to changed their accounting so that in accounting terms, if you if you realize it, we're talking about unrealized losses, but suppose you had actual realized losses. Suppose you were actually selling these bonds at less than you paid for them, uh, which is certainly imaginable, although maybe they wouldn't ever be inclined to do it, uh, that those losses would generate a debit, which under everybody's accounting in the world would carry a debit to net worth and and if the debit were big enough, it would create a reported negative net worth. But I said everybody, but it's everybody except the Fed because they changed their accounting so that if they ever actually have realized net losses on these bonds, they're going to create – they're going to carry that debit to a, a, an intangible asset account and just hang it up as a uh, – as an asset. I bet Jeff Skilling's kicking himself because he didn't think of that. Would well, a non-existing one. asset, obviously, since it's a debit that represents a loss. Now, this should make you think of something. It should make you think of what the what the savings and loans did under the tutelage of the forgotten but still greatly culpable Federal Home Loan Bank Board in the early 1980s with their losses. They did stuff like this. And you were around to, to watch that. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. at the home loan bank then, but I but, but, uh, but I was in the trade and yeah. I was watching it. You know, um, well, here's a word from our friends at Audible Books. Uh, could listening make you a better parent, better leader, you a better person? Could listening to motivating fitness programs get you fit? Could listening inspire you to start something new? Uh, with Audible, you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. Audible has one of the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now, with Audible Originals, the selection has just gotten even more cost- more content for members. For example, now uh, I happen to be a devotee of, uh, of the great Samuel Johnson, Dr. Samuel Johnson, a great man of 18th century English man of letters. And you'll have to trust me, folks, in this. I, I I listening. I listen to the uh, Life of Samuel Johnson, which runs to 40 hours. It's a long book. It runs to 40 hours by the great English action actor David Timpson. I listen to it at night, and I, I I put the phone under my pillow, and I set the timer for 15 minutes, and I go to sleep listening to David Timpson read from the Life of Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. And I tell you, it's magical. I mean, uh, Johnson is this fabulous writer and talker, of course. And I don't know, you have to kind of had to be there, I guess. But as long as you can set the timer, you don't have it going all night. But I, until I learned about the timer, I did have it going all night. And I would have these kind of crazy dreams about 18th century London, but they weren't all bad. So anyway, Audible members can choose three titles each month, one audiobook and two Audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. Audible members also get access to exclusive audio fitness programs to start the new year off on the right foot. So let's listen on any device, anytime, anywhere at home, at the gym, on your commute, or just put the darn phone under your pillow and do something you shouldn't do because the people tell you never to go to sleep with the phone, even nearby, let alone under the pillow, you crazy, but you can do it. Yeah. 
you can do that. You'll also enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audio library you can keep forever, even if you cancel. So audiobook, Audible, the most inspiring minds, the most compelling stories, the best place. So get started with a 30-day trial when you go to Audible. So it's, the, it's audible.com slash grant or text grant to 500 500. That's 500500. And listen for a change. Uh, go to audible.com slash grant or text grant to 500500 and listen for a change. So, um, you know, the Fed's capital accounts are arranged in a kind of a, uh, an almost nostalgic way. You'll find uh, that there's that the capital is only partially paid in. That's correct. Half paid in, to be precise. Half paid in. And this, this, con- this uh, uh, connotes the the era of uh, accessible bank chairs. And um, from the dawn of, uh, of, of banking in the modern age, at least till the mid-30s in this country and in Britain, I suppose elsewhere as well, uh, banks were either general partnerships in which the general partners were themselves liable for the debts of the firm personally, or um, under corporated uh, forms of organization, the, sh- the stockholders were the- were accessible at some not infinite but some finite uh, level if the firm in which they held a fractional interest became impaired or insolvent. And this is the arrangement of the organization of the Federal Reserve Banks. And uh, so J.P. Morgan, of course, is a stockholder in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, but it is accessible uh, to one half of the face value of the shares it owns in the event of the insolvency or the impairment of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which I, I think is one of the sweeter things to imagine. You know, this, 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 so the day of reckoning, the Grant's interest rate observer and the Alex J. Pollock day of reckoning in fiat currencies comes to pass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I the was big just, bad uh, banks get a think- capital call. Uh, and now for a word from our friends at Pitt D. Bowes. Shipping. Shipping can be complex with the uncertainty over costs and deciding which carrier to use, plus tracking your packages. Things can get confusing. With SendPro Online, it's easy to save time and money, no matter what you send, from letters and packages to overnights and flats. Uh, easily compare uh, U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx, all in one online tool. Uh, print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer, track all of your shipments, and get email notifications when they've arrived. Plus, when the USPS postal rates increase on January 27th, as they always seem to do, you'll still be able to access savings of up to 40% off U.S. Postal Service priority mail and five cents off every letter you send just by using SendPro Online. So SendPro Online is only $14.99 a month, and listeners can get a free 30-day trial when you visit pb, as in peanut butter, pb.com slash brands pod. Uh, you'll uh, receive a free 10-pound scale to help you weigh your packages and accurately calculate the cost of shipping, so you'll never overpay. Uh, that's pb.com slash grantspod. Experience the convenience of SendPro online for yourself when you sign up for a free 30-day trial. I was just thinking about this yesterday at the suggestion of a friend of mine. The uh, I'm looking at the Fed's September 30th. Uh, balance sheet. Uh, their capital paid in is $32 billion, which is not too much on a $4 trillion balance sheet. Anyway, total net worth is $39 billion, also not too much, but $32 billion paid in. Well, there's another $32 billion which is accessible. Right. So they could raise another $32 billion uh, by assessing the, the, the shareholders who are, of course, the banks. Commercial banks who are members of the Federal Reserve banks would have to send in uh, another $32 billion. If they did that, they would just cover their September 30th negative 
uh, mark-to-market net worth of negative $27 billion. So if you raised another 32, that would put you at plus $5 billion on your $4 trillion balance sheet. Uh, anyway, it's a delicious thing to imagine. Uh, yes, I don't think they'd like the Fed would like to be seen as having to call for more capital from the banks. But how would the banks like it? The smaller banks yeah. would love it because if you have less than ten billion in assets under the current version of the Federal Reserve Act, you get a statutory six percent dividend. And I do believe I think that, that dividend six, rates being reduced is it not? N- not for not for not for most banks. Only for big banks. For most banks, $10 billion and less in total assets. That's, that's let's, almost let's, all let's, banks. Yeah. It's 6% by statute. Right. With a zero risk-based capital asset, this is a great asset. So they, they would actually love to have their to get this capital call, and then they would own this stock, which is always held at par. And pays a very, you know, what is still today would be a very great yield of 6% on what will be considered a risk-free asset. That's Now, that, well, I that's a paradoxical thing. I dare say if you were a capital call, it would not be considered a risk-free asset, but be that as it may. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it's all ironic, uh, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know, um, the, the fanciful accounting of the Fed and its somewhat unpresentable-looking balance sheet reminds me, I dare say it reminds uh, Phil and uh, Evan as well, of the uh, decline in the rigor of accounting in what we now call the private sector, as we always have called it. But, um, you know, EBITDA is perhaps uh, a, an example of original sin from which follows adjusted EBITDA and adjusted adjusted EBITDA and community adjusted EBITDA and so forth. And I wonder if one of the features of an inflationary era, a fiat era, is the destruction of the rigor of presented accounts. Is that a viable proposition? Uh, might be. I haven't haven't thought of it. But one thing we know that's about the Federal Reserve is who sets Federal Reserve accounting principles. Uh, And the answer is that the Federal Reserve itself uh, sets Federal Reserve accounting principles. That's quite fascinating. Uh, uh, Hardly anybody gets to set your own accounting principles. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, we work did. I guess the government sets its own accounting principles. Well, enough of this lamentation, Alex. Um, I don't. I don't know whether um, I share your uh, curiosity about whether this is going to make a splash in the financial world, but it certainly has made a splash here at Grants. And uh, thank you for some terrific work. And uh, I don't know, for, in general, Alex J. Pollock, thank you, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Jim, thank you very much, and all for your for your interest and your your kind comments on the piece. And it's great to have the chance to discuss it. All right. Thank you. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, uh, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 